Okay, and welcome back to Fastship Performance. Then I'm Tim Davies. I've got a post out for you. It's an interesting one, especially if you're a man and you're in the middle-aged kind of area of your life, or if you're approaching it, of course, anywhere from your early 30s to your late 40s, probably worth paying attention to this one. It's 10 minutes, but as it says on this post here, uh, it will take you 10 minutes to read, but it might save you a lifetime. Uh, And that's kind of relevant, really. I don't write posts uh, because of an event that's happened. I don't let something happen, and then I write a post about it. I'm kind of writing all the time. But sometimes it takes something to make me finish some of the writing I'm doing. And in this case, that's exactly what's happened. Uh, A few weeks back, we lost one of our own. We lost a pilot who felt that he could not resolve the issues that were going on in his head, unfortunately. Uh, For me personally, I lost another guy a couple of weeks before that that I knew. And then last year, I think it was three guys in a very similar fashion, all aviators. Uh, And that kind of spurred me on through my own history, which I do talk about in this post, to uh, talk to you a little bit about what I went through and how um, someone reached out to me and kind of put me back on the straight and narrow. And really, it's about connecting with each other. So I was going to name it some other stuff, really. I, I was going to name it something like, you know, it's uh, it's good to talk, something like that. But really, what I've named here is um, when good pilots go bad. And if there's commanders out there, and I know there are commanders out here listening to this, it's all well and good um, talking about it at Met Brief or something and make sure we look after each other. But it's actually knowing your people, I find, is the best way of predicting whether anyone is going to do something fucking stupid. Right. OK, so when good pilots go bad. It was all going horribly wrong. I was a military fast jet pilot and I was in a spin. Things were coming apart. And I didn't know what to do. I was losing control and all I could think about was the end. But as I sat in my office looking out over the airfield, I wish that I was having a real emergency in my aircraft because the one I kept having was in my head. Now imagine that there's an illness in the UK that the government doesn't fully understand. If you're a man and you catch a disease, it will kill you faster than road accidents, murder and HIV AIDS combined. It is the number one killer of men under the age of 45, killing more of them than even cancer and heart disease. The government argues that medical progress is slowing down a number of causes of death, yet deaths caused by this disease are at their highest level ever. When someone dies of it, the news doesn't normally report it. In fact, nobody really talks about it, and that only makes the problem worse. Worried? Yeah, you should be. The disease is suicide, and men, especially those in the 30 to 44 age bracket, remain more than three times more likely to take their own lives than women across the UK. 75% of people who take their own lives have never been diagnosed with a mental health problem and only 5% of people who suffer from depression go on to commit suicide. But the really strange thing is that in 50 years of research there is still no way of predicting whether someone will make a suicide attempt any better than just tossing a coin. On the 2nd of June 2013, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Shaw, 52, and Deputy Commander of the Land Warfare Centre in Warminster, got into his Land Rover to take his gun collection to the gunsmiths to sell. But he never arrived. His wife later found him in the car in a nearby field with a single gunshot wound to the chest. He'd taken his own life. Team GB snowboarding coach Nelson Pratt, 33, hanged himself in his garage last year. His friend, Marcus Chapman, said Nelson was popular, healthy, successful and physically very fit. It was devastating 
for everyone. How could someone so outwardly healthy have this happen to them? Men aren't very good at telling someone how they're feeling. Often, it's those who seem outwardly fine who are doing the worst. The brighter the light, the darker the shadow. It is believed that hundreds of male suicides could be prevented if men felt able to ask for help when they desperately needed it. But men often experience a cultural barrier when it comes to talking about not being able to cope and are reluctant to seek help. And it is the recent suicide of Australian Wallabies player Dan Vickerman, 37, which was never initially reported as suicide, that gives us some insight into the thinking of someone in trouble. In an athlete's early life, they are supported by a team, players and coaches, but as they near their mid-30s, these things go away. A diminishing support network affects many people at this age and it can signify a very difficult time. As for a sportsman nearing the end of their career, financial issues start to become very real for many people in their late 30s. Their friends might be starting to get onto the housing ladder, placing pictures of their new home on social media, which only highlights an individual's inadequacies in not being able to do the same. Relationships that were hurried into might start to break down at this age, especially should children or the absence of them be a factor. Here's a quote. The suicide rate among young men in this country is an appalling stain on our society. Suicide is the biggest killer of men under 40 in this country. Not cancer, not knife crime, not road deaths, suicide. If one of these other issues took so many young lives, there would be a national outcry. That was the Duke of Cambridge. Having built a couple of decades of career capital up to this point, work pressures start to become very real. And often a decision has to be made as to whether you go down that promotion route or devote time to the family. And a lot of life events start to happen as you head into your 40s. Parents get sick and they might die. You start to realise that you might not be able to change the world and that maybe you are in a job that you hate, but it pays the mortgage. And people get divorced, which for men, increases the risk of suicide threefold. The average age of divorce of men being 45. Lieutenant Colonel Shaw was a genial and jovial man, but had become depressed and withdrawn in the weeks leading up to his death. His experiences in the First Gulf War and Kosovo had led to him being traumatised, and he was sent home. He had been deemed unsuitable for frontline duties ever since. He became worried about his future after retirement from the army in three years' time and his ability to provide for his family. He had told colleagues that he would have left the army if it had not been for the school fees he had to pay for his three children, twins aged 14 and a 10-year-old. This all seems to coincide with army work pressures through staff cutbacks or at least a failure to replace staff who had left in what could be considered an appropriate time frame, the coroner said. Shaw wasn't suited to an office job and his boss was placing heavy work pressure upon him. He also had relationship issues, which all appear to have chipped away at his confidence. The result was an overwhelming loss of self-esteem, which resulted in a downward spiral of unhappiness, mental health decline and anxiety. His quote, most employers are getting better at dealing with depression in the workplace. Other and the government and its institutions, which are getting worse. That's from a book called Depressive Illness, The Curse of the Strong, 
by a guy called Tim Cantifer. And I recommend that book if you're interested. Get it on Amazon. It's not that expensive. Um, it's actually it's not the biggest book in the world either, but it's worth a skip through, especially if you're leading people. Read the book and you'll understand why it affects strong people rather than weak people. Now, I recently heard of a psychiatric team who asked by a high-profile company to come and give a talk on suicide prevention. When the company told them that they had gathered all of their new recruits into the main office, the team told them to start again. Fetch us everyone over 30, especially the men, they said. Men feel a pressure to be the winner, which is only encouraged by the media. We feel that we should be strong and feel ashamed of showing any signs of weakness. We must appear in control of ourselves and our lives at all times. As men age, we are often no longer the centre of the family or job. As a new child or younger employee comes along, men have embraced an individualism, a survivor complex where we feel that we can go it alone and don't need the support of others. We have so shunned relationships with other men that we resort to consumption to create excitement. We spend many hours on Amazon or eBay just looking for things to buy. Often, a combination of these things can push an otherwise strong man into depression and ultimately suicide. If we were to regress back to the Paleolithic era, where man's sole aim was to survive, we'd see that what occupied us in those times were things with tangible value. Building a cave house, collecting wood for the fire, hunting the buffalo, avoiding the saber-toothed tiger attack and making babies. There wasn't much texting or email going on back then. But if we were to break down exactly why we were doing the things we were doing whilst building the human race on the plains of Africa over two million years ago, some interesting things appear. We were designed to be dissatisfied. And this is important as it meant that we had to be constantly looking out for the next opportunity else we lose our competitive edge. If we were to have ever felt that we had enough, we might become complacent and we would have been vulnerable to someone stealing our cave or our food or our woman. In prehistoric times, this would have probably been the end of us. There being no civilization meant that you wouldn't be able to survive outside of a group. It is only in the last 1% of human existence that we have not had to battle every day just to stay alive, to be fed and find protection. Our instinctive need to get more creates this persistent state of dissatisfaction. Now move on a few million years and we think that a life of continual happiness is achievable, but this is just not possible. We're just not built that way. What we really need is a meaning to our existence or a purpose, but often what men have is an emptiness, a vacuum that we try to fill. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, the psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, says that one of the most conspicuous signs of an existential vacuum is in our society is boredom. The automation of things has left us with little to do, and in turn, this makes many men feel redundant with the subsequent loss of self-esteem. And there's a quote from a Samaritan's report back in 2015 that you might find interesting here. It says, men from the lowest class living in the most deprived areas are up to 10 times more likely to end their lives by suicide. More than 10 times. That's just crazy. And where did the community go? Well, the community went online. And there's this thing about the online world, because when you go there and you see how successful everyone else is, well, it's like that because people just don't put bad things about themselves online. A couple of years ago, when the RAF was struggling to build a flying training squad and that I was on. I was leading a 12-man team of highly professional instructors who were very, very tired. 
One afternoon, after numerous failed attempts to try and get a social occasion organised for the squadron, I just snapped. I ordered all of my team to stop flying by lunchtime and I told them that we were going to have a meeting that afternoon and that they absolutely had to be there. It was a beautiful, sunny day with the calmest Irish sea that we had seen for months. I told them that the location of the meeting was the local beach and they were going to bring swimming gear. There was the inevitable cursing and the expected sighs of, but I've got work to do, but as it was in order, they had to turn up. I spoke to the squadron programmers and told them that my men had an afternoon of SOPs to go over, which was accepted. Now, SOPs were squadron operational procedures and a document that my team owned. But what I had in store for them was a different kind of SOP. So when my team arrived at the beach and saw the 12 surfboards that I had rented, all nicely lined up against the wall, the stand-on paddleboard meeting soon got underway. It was my way of saying thank you for all the hard work they were putting in. And as we all guiltily floated about with our newfound freedom, I could, sense, I could feel a sense of calm descending over our small flotilla. For the first time in years, we spoke about issues at work and problems at home. And I felt that we were doing something that we used to do, but had somehow been forgotten, which was talk. Here's a quote. Here we have a senior army officer who feels ashamed of himself, who thinks he has failed, whether or not that is the case, and also has failed to discuss the problems. That's from the coroner from Lieutenant Colonel Shaw's suicide inquiry. There's not much time for talking anymore, what with today's bosses, promotion prospects based on output figures rather than their employees' happiness. People don't tend to go to the pub anymore either. In the military, people often live off base and cheap widescreen TVs and the internet mean that more people would rather retire to their rooms and socialise in the mess bars. This means that people don't decompress after work, but instead take the workday's problem home with them. When I returned from Afghanistan back in 2011, it was with an army unit and we were all taken via Cyprus to decompress. This takes a couple of days and make sure that we all return with clean uniform and a few nights sleep. They literally put you on a beach with some paddle boards and water wings and leave you there all day. It's supposed to give you time to do nothing, to just talk about your experiences and to relax before heading home. You can't use phones, computers, or social media. You just eat sandwiches and mess about and blow up dolphins. But I loved it. I ended up paddling out on a small kayak towards North Africa before a rescue boat came and found me. Sir, have you looked behind you recently? Said the young RF corporal as he leant over the side to hand me a bottle of water. And as I turned around, the southern Cypriot coastline was but a distant horizon. I totally switched off and had just kept paddling. Although the experience was beneficial for me, it was to signify the start of some very dark years. My father had died the month previously and six weeks later I would be sent to investigate the death of a colleague. During that time, I would witness the death of another. Here's a quote. I've had 18 straight whiskies. I think that's the record. That's Dylan Thomas on the night he died. As the months away from home mounted up, my marriage would suffer significant strain. My alcohol use increased and the pressure of holding it all together while standing up a new flying squadron would eventually push me into therapy. One of the more common ways us men deal with stress, anxiety or depression is by self-medicating with alcohol and often drugs. We go to the pub and we drink at home, which helps to block out and hide how we feel. We drink and talk and initially feel better, but very soon the drugs and alcohol can end up as big a problem as the mental health problems were in the first place. During my dark times, post-2012, I had a sense that nothing was fun or 
worth doing anymore. I was constantly tired, but would keep dragging myself to the squadron to go flying. Until I found help, I thought this was normal. Indeed, I thought I was doing the right thing to still be able to function at such a high level whilst feeling this way. But I was wrong. I didn't know it because in the military, we don't often speak about mental health. Here's a quote. The depressed person was in a terrible and unceasing emotional pain. And the impossibility of sharing or articulating this pain was itself a component of the pain and a contributing factor in its essential horror. That's from an essay called The Depressed Person, which was written back in 1998 by a guy called David Foster Wallace, who committed suicide on the 12th of September 2008. If you read the essay, you'll probably only read it once. It is truly horrific. You see, often it's just easier to say, I'm fine, thank you. And in the military, when we get strange thoughts, we think we can solve it ourselves. Men do this. We are quite resilient people and don't always trust the medical services. I once spoke to a military doctor about seeking counselling a year or so before I eventually did and was told, if you go for counselling, I'll have to stop you flying. Now, the doctor was wrong. They don't stop you flying in all but the most extreme of cases, but it does highlight the fear that many aircrew and other military persons have with seeking mental health therapies. Here's a quote from a, a veteran. and I saw this on a morning TV show and it was quite interesting. It says, it's taboo. No one really wants to come out and say, I'm struggling. I'm having nightmares. They are quick to teach you how to put a bayonet into someone, but not so quick to teach you how to seek help when you leave. That's from guardsman Daniel Malkangi, who was mentioned in dispatches. And he's a, he's a veteran now, does a lot of mental health stuff outside. Now, if we look at clinical depression, it really only happens to strong people. And where do we often find strong people? In the military, the emergency services, and in overstretched public sector industries. These industries demand that its personnel are reliable, have a strong sense of right or wrong, are responsible and put the needs of others before their own. They demonstrate strength, but are also understanding and the actions are often validated by the opinions of others. Now I've seen squadrons stress to the point at which they are about to fail. I've raised my concerns to command and even in one case, that would necessarily go outside of the squadron hierarchy in order to ensure the safety of my team. This doesn't do your career much good, but does allow you to sleep at night. The one thing that constantly surprises me is how far strong people can be stressed before they do eventually break. It takes some doing, but they will eventually break. And this is because a strong person just doesn't know how to say no. The military public sector and big businesses love these people. If we were to give the same set of stresses to someone who is weak or lazy, they will quickly give up. So they will never get stressed enough to become ill. A strong person, however, will react to these pressures by constantly trying to overcome them. And it is often just one more task that becomes a straw that breaks the camel's back and leads them down the road of depression. This is often why people continue to not seek help even when they are feeling down. They attempt to read and analyze their way out of their problems, continue to take on more at work and knuckle down and get on with the job. Yeah, I did that, I did that too. They see depression as a weakness that won't affect them and this can often be something that a boss who lacks empathy will, will capitalize on. Depression is often characterized by perfection, 
mental rigidity, self-blame, an enhanced sense of responsibility, emotional avoidance, binary or black or white thinking, and intolerance for ambiguity. This can all describe military life perfectly and is often why service personnel are labelled with depression upon leaving the military. When it militarises a civilian as they enter the services, the military needs to recognise that it has a responsibility to change them back again once they leave. Having already gone through the leaving process once, I can tell you that it is sadly lacking in this area. So, what can men do? Well, stop trying to be comic book heroes for a start. I found, through help, that when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at often change. There is a line of thought that says that depression is a way of our mind telling us to slow down and that we should hibernate for a while to recover from being so overloaded. After all, if we were attacked by a saber-toothed tiger, we'd go and hide in our cave for a few days to heal. We need to recognise that it is just okay to take some time out to recover. The truth is that as men, we are dicks. We think we can cope on our own, but in reality, we need to talk things through with someone. What I find useful in maintaining a positive outlook is having a defined purpose in life. Looking after your diet, exercise, meditation, getting some counselling, establishing a routine, goals, dreams, or finding a passion can also help. I think this is the last quote here and then we're almost done. Human beings are works in progress that mistakenly think they're finished. The person you are right now is as transient, as fleeting, and as temporary as all the people you've ever been. The one constant in our life is change. That's from Dan Gilbert, Stumbling on Happiness. Now, I got lucky. Eventually, a fellow officer reached out to me, recognising that I was as much an alpha male as he was. He made my problem his own. He told me of the issues he was having and how he'd seen this great guy a couple of hours drive away. And he recommended that I went too, if not just to get off a busy squadron that was going through a very rough phase and causing some of us anxiety issues. He normalised my problem and made it acceptable for me to go and seek help. And that's why in 2012, I found myself at the Military Department of Community Mental Health in Telford seeing a psychologist. And I got help and I got better. So maybe we should stop telling men to man up. Talk to our buddies. Let them know that they don't have to keep achieving and that it is okay to just be okay. And maybe we should question our mates further when they say, I'm fine. Delve a little deeper. Ask them how they really are because who knows, it might be the best possible chance we have of keeping them with us on their worst possible day. Last quote then from the Duke of Cambridge. Mental health needs to be brought out of the dark and destigmatized. And on the post here, the uh, photo is of an F-16 in the vertical and that's because uh, one of our buddies who unfortunately couldn't make it this far, that was one of the aircraft that he was flying. A good buddy to many people. Uh, one of the things I would leave you with is just remember, you know, we're human beings, not human doings. And I've heard that one before, that's from someone else, it's not from me, but what I'm trying to do in my life is spend more time, you know, being just being a human and appreciating the small things and not the whole doing thing, like trying to build my fast jet performance empire, whatever it's going to be. You know, that's the thing. I'm just trying to just take more time, 
to work out what's going on and to chill out and mow lawns and have to think about stuff. But I'm also trying not to overanalyze things. It's very easy for people with analytical brains to get themselves wrapped up in a whole kind of spiral of despair. And, you know, that's the thing. We don't want to be doing that. And if you can find yourself just going to the pub, maybe having a couple of beers or going for a run with some guys or get on your bike and chat a few things through, maybe tap a guy on the shoulder and just say, you know what? I'm not feeling great. If you're not feeling great, tell someone you're not feeling great. I've got an email address here. You can tell me you're not feeling great. I'll write back to you and say, oh, that's fine. That's two of us. That's all good. You know, there's a lot of people out there flying a lot of airplanes that don't feel great right now, but we're compartmentalizing and we're seeking help. So we're putting stuff in a box. We're going to see someone who knows what to do about it. And we're talking things through. And that's the key. Talk these things through. All right. Because when the sun comes up in the morning, it's always another day. Even when it's a dark night beforehand, you don't think it's going to be. Okay. Got any snags, guys? Leave some comments in there because what you write in there helps other people. I don't think people tend to understand that. So when you comment on one of the posts on the site here, you comment on Facebook or you, you go to the podcast on iTunes and you write something there, it benefits someone else. And the reason I call people warriors on my site, you might have seen my emails where I say, hey, warrior, is because I believe it because there's a team out there fighting the good fight. We're all there together. That's what I don't understand about men sometimes. It's like there's this big war going on between us, whereas really we're all going in the same direction. We're all trying to do the best for other people that we know. Yet for some reason, we just have to go out and fight with each other on a Saturday night. I get it. Everyone wants to go fight and fight and whatever. But the reason I call people warriors is because I believe it. I believe that we're all fighting that fight together, helping each other out, making ourselves better so that we can uh, make our relationships with other people better, our families, our friends, our parents, our kids, whatever it might be. Leave you with that. Thanks for listening. A long post, 25 minutes. Okay, you're all legends. You know this. All right, look after each other. Tim Davies, Fast Hit Performance.